All right, open up a, a phone or a Bible or something, please, to Luke chapter, Luke chapter 19. Uh, that's where we're going to be uh, this morning. Uh, we're not going to be there for a while, so um, just head there on your phone or your Bible and then just turn it off again because we'll, we will read it eventually, but not, not, uh, not straight away. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm gonna, we're going to dive into this new series that we're doing on gospel culture. Let me pray for us as we come to to God's word. Yeah. yeah. Father, as we um as we ask every week, we always want to just be in a rhythm of pausing as we come to your word, um, acknowledging that we we remain a people desperately in need of the help of the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to be the revealer of who you are and what we're like and what we need, and to to unblock ears that can't, can't always hear, to open up eyes that can't always see, and to soften hearts that don't always want to receive what you have to say to us. And so we come now and humble ourselves before you and say, Father, would you speak to us? Would you come and faithfully do the work of loving us and teaching us and shaping us by um, the Holy Spirit using your word amongst us? And um, we, we, we remain a people so desperately in need of hearing the words of the living God. And so we don't come just to look at a book. We don't come to listen to a talk. We come expectantly to hear and trust that you will speak to us, that you will move amongst us, and that we will leave this place this morning transformed because you are faithful to love us and to pursue us week after week, day after day. And we pray that you do that again this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We're diving into a new series uh, for the next few weeks on gospel, gospel culture, how gospel doctrine shapes life in community. Um, you may wonder why we're doing this, why we're doing a book. This is something that we've been cooking on for a while. Um, and essentially, let me give you some kind of intro uh, orientation and handles on, on why we're doing this, why, why it's really important. Um, a church, every church believes stuff. Every church subscribes to doctrine. That's the, 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 the faith statement or the beliefs that a church will have. Uh, and every church has a feel, has a way that it lives out uh, what it claims to believe or other things. Sometimes those things map up and sometimes they're separate. They're different. Now, at Parkhurst, you may be brand new or you may have been here the whole time. And so you may be clueless about our doctrine, or you may think you've got it all buttoned down. You're like, if you took the doctrine test, you would nail it. Um, others of you have been around for a while. Maybe you'd be less confident on the doctrine test, but you feel pretty comfortable in terms of what the church feels like. Some of you, this is your first time ever, and it'd be interesting to ask you the question, what does this church feel like? It's a great question to ask yourself. What does our church, those of us who are regulars, what does our church feel like? How do we live? How do we live together? Does the way that we live together and are, uh, relate to one another, does it map and match up with what we say we believe about doctrine? Are those two things together? Because if they're not, here's some of the options of what you get. If you have doctrine without culture, you have a bunch of hypocrites. You say, we believe all of these things, we just don't live them out. If you live out a whole bunch of stuff, 
that may be really healthy and life-giving, but it's not connected to any solid doctrine, you have like a real flakiness. It's quite flimsy. And that can just drift and shift according to who's in the room or whatever floats anyone's boat. When you get solid gospel doctrine and solid gospel culture together, you have got a life-giving place and a place of real power, welcome, and transformation. That is the kind of church we want to build and be a part of. And I promise you, you want to be a part of that too. Whether or not you're a believer in Jesus or not, someone dragged you along here today, you haven't been to church in 10 years, no one cares here. Um, If you want to be a part of a church, I promise you, you want to be a part of a church that matches what it says it believes with how it lives it out. And both of those things are grounded in the truth of the gospel, not in some wafty cultural idea or the next best thing that we think will work. Listen to this quote by um, Francis Schaeffer, famous uh, Christian author. He said this, One cannot explain One cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis, of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church. A community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. Yeah, amen. Church is not a place where you come to hear a talk, a place where I get to just preach. Church is something where we do that as well. We we focus on doctrine. It's a big deal for us. Church in the holistic sense, a, a church that changes the world and a church that people want to be a part of is a church that marries the doctrine and its culture together. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring this more. Uh, a lot of what we're going to be looking at is informed by a, a, a book and a podcast called You're Not Crazy by Sam Aubrey and Ray uh, Ortland. You can find that stuff online. I'll reference it every week um, if you want to dive uh, more and more into it. But let me ask you, I'm going to ask, ask lots and lots of questions as we go through this series because part of this is us, it's, is aspirational. Who do we want to be as a church? But it's also diagnostic. What are we like as a church? Let's take our pulse. And if you're new, um, I honestly would love to hear. You could come and find me afterwards. We don't have to have a long chat. We don't have to be new best friends. Um, you may not want to come and chat to me after this sermon. Um, but I'd love to hear, what, what does this church feel like when you wander in as a new person? What, what is the welcome like here? Do you feel like this is a welcoming place or not? And those of us who are regulars would love to hear that and be confronted and challenged by that, whether it is yes or not. And maybe people have all, all have different experiences. But um, I heard scathing review of a church once from a friend of mine, his review of the church was this, it must be great if you're already part of it. That was his review of the church he visited. It must be great if you're already part of it. You watched a whole bunch of people having the time of their lives, high fives, hugs. This is just such a lack of place. Totally oblivious that there may be anyone who's not already part of the team. And may it never be that Parkhurst is a place like that where people watch us having the best time. We're all like, man, we look like one big happy family. And if you're part of the family, great. But if you're not part of the family, sorry for you. 
find another family. This family is closed. Okay. Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses 1 to 10. As Before we get there, one last question. What do you think the most controversial thing is that Jesus did? He did lots of controversial things, did he not? What is the most, one of the most controversial things that he did? Healing on the Sabbath. Any votes for healing on the Sabbath? We're not going to do this. This will take too long. Oh, there's two votes already. Casting out demons. That's pretty controversial stuff. Claiming to be God. Yeah. There's a lot of votes for that. Yeah, I thought so. Choosing a bunch of B-teamers to be his disciples. I mean, listen, they're not the the top of the crop there. Those folks would have already been in rabbi school. They would have been chosen already. They'd be funny. These folks were out fishing. They weren't even Christians. They were tax collectors. They were reprobates. They were whatever else is. And Jesus called them to be his disciples. That's controversial. I want to suggest to you, and I'm going to back it up a bit later on, that the that the, one of the most, maybe the most controversial thing that Jesus did is that he ate together with sinners. It's the thing that causes the most muttering and grumbling amongst the religious people. That's what they call him out for, don't they? Luke 15, verse 1. I don't know if these are all here. No. Is Luke 15 there? I'll just read it. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're not like praising Jesus. They are heaping scorn on him. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. I'm going to explore this in a bit more detail later on. But eating a meal with people back then, it was different to eating a meal with people now. It can be significant now, but back then it was a massive massive thing to share a meal with people and who jesus chose to eat food with is a really really big deal and it's way worth paying attention meals are a big deal they're a big deal somebody one commentator estimates i think it's in luke's gospel that 75 percent of the time that you hear about jesus he's either eating with somebody on his way to a meal or on his way from a meal i love that uh Jesus is either eating or going somewhere or he's like finished the eating and he's going leaving. And it's like, he's just doing meals with people. I can get into that kind of a ministry, just like eating with people. Wonderful. It meant a lot then. It means a lot now, but it's controversial. And it got Jesus into a world of trouble because he was accused of befriending and eating with sinners. Luke 19, verse 1 to 10. Let's read the whole thing and then we'll dig it up into it a few verses at a time from verse when he entered jericho and was passing through there was a man named zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich he was trying to see who jesus was but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man so running ahead he climbed up a sycamore tree to see jesus since he was about to pass that way When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, Uh, hurry and come down, because today it's necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, 
look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today's salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. But the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Let's walk through this and then we'll talk about some implications for us as a, as a community as we close it out. It says he entered Jericho, passed through, there's a man named Zacchaeus and he was the chief tax collector and he was rich. You need to stop there. This is not a likely candidate for an interaction with Jesus or for coming to faith. Tax collectors then were, um, they weren't great people, to be honest. Um, the Jews were under Roman occupation. The Romans had instituted a taxing system to tax them, and they employed uh, locals who basically sold out their countrymen uh, to collect the taxes that went to, to Rome. And so they chose to enrich themselves and endear themselves to Rome rather than stand up for and fight for their own people and stand in solidarity with their, their countrymen. And it was lucrative stuff. Um, they would, you know, up it a little bit. There was a bit of flexibility, and maybe as there always is in dealing with tax, on how they gathered it. Zacchaeus wasn't a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. So all the tax collectors reported to him. He, he was a very wealthy, very powerful, but very disliked man. It's, it's difficult to, it's, it's not like the governor of, the, of, of SARS or it's, it's the SARS have a governor. I don't know, whoever, who's the leader of SARS? It's not like that oak. Like, I mean, no one really likes that oak, but he's just doing his job. Uh, it's not the same thing. Don't think that. Like, this is, this is a guy who was despised and reviled in the community because he, he profited of exploiting his countrymen. And so when Jesus comes to town, he's not the front runner for an interaction with Jesus, and no one, listen to this, no one is inviting him and saying, hey, Zacchaeus, Jesus is coming to town. Pull in, bud. The, the story makes it clear. He's a short man. I love that detail. He's short. Uh, all the short people are like, I see myself in the Bible there. Uh, they're not making way for him. They said, oh, shame, Zacchaeus, you can't see. Guys, make a space so that the short guy can see. They're like, get lost, you clown. They would have told him, like, for man, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that in a sermon, but they wouldn't be, like, encouraging him um, to come and have a look. Because what, what would he be there for? Religious, you've got nothing to do with religious things or with a religious leader. You can just go and sit at home on your own, Norman, no friends, hang out with the other tax collectors and just count your money. Uh, but this is not your vibe here. Verse 3, it says he's trying to see Jesus, but he's not able because he's short. So he ran ahead, climbs up a tree. Jesus was about to pass that way. I want to reiterate that this is a hated man in the community. He needs to climb up a tree um, to be able to see. But he has also made personal decisions. It's not just that the community hates him and are ostracizing him. He has signed up to be a tax collector and signed up to be a chief tax collector. He has happily exploited his countrymen and turned his back against the living God. This is his choice. He has taken these steps and he finds himself in the situation, in the context of his life because of what he has decided um, to do. And even as he's sitting in that tree, I wonder what's going through his mind. 
wonder what the traction is. Maybe he's just heard about Jesus. He would have heard about Jesus. That was what was happening. There's a massive following, lots of buzz around Jesus. Maybe he's just interested. But things happen really quickly um, for Zacchaeus. This is the kind of day where, and maybe you had a day like this. Some of you, before you came to faith, I've met lots of people who've, who've had days like this, where you woke up one day uh, and you were kind of minding your own business. And I, I was having coffee with somebody a few weeks ago and they were telling me a story similar to this. Uh, they had been invi- invited to church. They had resisted going to church for the longest time. They'd grown up in a church school, so they kind of knew some of the basics of Christianity, but they'd like thought this was just like religious-y, hymn singing, nonsense, nothing relevant to their life kind of thing. And they'd resisted an invitation to church for the longest time, eventually accepted an invitation one Sunday morning just to come to church just to shut up their friend. You know? You know those kind of people? It's just like, if I go once, will you stop asking me? And so, okay, here's the go. And and became a believer in Jesus that day. You know, some, some people have days like you wake up in the morning and you think it's just going to be a regular day. And by the time your head hits the pillow, you're a completely different person. That is the day that Zacchaeus had here. Unbeknownst to him, it's not like he's, he's reading apologetics books, he's trying to figure out is Jesus who he says he is. He's not like searching. He's, he's, he's curious, he's inquisitive. There's maybe stuff going on in his heart. The Bible doesn't tell us all of these things. But as you see his response later on, there's definitely something happening. But he's not a likely candidate to come to Jesus. I just want to mention that to you, particularly if you're here this morning and you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself a follower of Jesus. There are no likely candidates for following Jesus. There's nobody in this room who's more likely to be a faithful follower of Jesus. You're in good company. None of us deserved to get in. None of us would have made the A-team. We all are a people in need of massive grace, kind of like Zacchaeus. There's no one's inviting him to come check Jesus out. But in verse 5, Jesus comes to the place and he looks up and he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it's necessary for me to stay at your house. To stay at your house. It's surprising detail in the story that Zacchaeus didn't fall out of the tree. In shock. This is now a famous rabbi with a following who's saying to the tax collecting sinner, I'm going to come and stay at your house tonight. Zacchaeus, we're having dinner at your place. Jesus didn't have a place. Are you with me? Um, so he's like, we're having mac and cheese and it's going to be at your house. You're cooking and I'm going to stay there. This is unthinkable. It, it's difficult to transport us into that world. This didn't happen. Rabbis in particular did not befriend and have meals and have, you know, stay over in the houses of tax collectors and sinners. It is a surprise Zacchaeus didn't fall out of the tree. Jesus is not like anyone else you have ever met. The title of the sermon is Welcome and Grace. Jesus has a welcome and is a grace giver and grace extender like no one you will ever, ever meet. And Zacchaeus encounters that in real time and full HD, 4K, whatever it is supposed to be. It's just, and it absolutely blows him away. It's scandalous. It's scandalous what Jesus is saying here. He's not just like, oh, you know, I'm sick of having lunch and dinner with the disciples. I need new company. Hey, Zacchaeus, let's hang out, you know. 
it's, he's the tax collector. He's the sinner. And you see, uh, you'll see in a, in a minute the response of the people watching, murmuring, mumbling, complaining. He is going to stay with the sinful man. They are aghast. They are flabbergasted at who Jesus chooses to hang out with. I mentioned we needed to unpack a bit more about the meal. Meals were kind of like almost boundary markers, if you want. Like if you ate with somebody, it was it was like a together thing. They they were they were in, and if you didn't, they were out. You, you see this in um, I think it's in, in Corinthians when Paul talks about uh, people who've been put out of the church. You've been kicked out. He says, don't, don't have anything to do with them. Don't, don't eat with them. Because eating was such a together thing. It was such a, a, a sign of acceptance and welcome and togetherness that when you ate a meal together, um, the boundaries came down and you were in. And here we see Jesus eating with a tax collector, eating with a son, extending an undeserved welcome and exorbitant, exorbitant grace. Obviously, obviously, Zacchaeus, verse 6, he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. I mean, wouldn't you? If you were sitting in the tree, Norman, no friends, social outcast in some ways, and Jesus himself stops and says, hey, we're having dinner at your house, and I'm staying over. Zacchaeus jumps down. I want to say this, that it's slightly disconnected. When... If we're getting it right, when people hear the message of the gospel in its fullness and they hear the welcome of Jesus and the message of grace that's on offer in the gospel, their response should be, sign me up. Absolutely. That is the best news I've ever, ever. No one has shared such good news with me. If the good news doesn't sound like good news, it's something's missing it. If it sounds like a whole bunch of stuff that you have to do. If, this is more if you're not a Christian yet. If, if following Jesus sounds like a whole bunch of stuff that you have to do or not do, or hoops you have to jump through, whatever else, or, or a, a, a prescription to tidy up your life and to stop being such a, you know, a waste of space and just to get on with life, it's not, it's not the gospel. The gospel is good news to you because it's an invitation to grace and so it's an invitation to rest in the finished work that Jesus is and that is wonderful news to weary souls and it's great news to Zacchaeus and he jumps down and everyone starts mumbling and complaining verse 7 if you're looking to find yourself anywhere in this story and identify with any characters look no further Look no further, because I think the characters that we are all identify with most are the mumblers and the complainers and the grumblers here. I wrote in my notes here that our favorite view is looking down our noses at others. The favorite viewpoint for most Christians is looking down our nose at others. It's just in us. Self-righteousness runs deep, guys. It runs so, so deep. And it's a miraculous thing when the Holy Spirit is able to root that out part by part and we grow in grace and in welcome and acceptance of others. It happens amongst believers and unbelievers. Self-righteousness is just a thing. We all have categories of people who we feel are deserving 
and or less deserving. It's just how it is. It can be how they look, how they behave, what laws they keep, what laws they break, how they treat you, how they treat others. You hear some people say like, that's their thing. It's how you talk to the waitresses. That's the defining mark of their character. I don't care how, whatever, if they talk to the waitresses nastily, then they're, ah, scratch them off the list. I'm like, that's the thing. That's your thing. Now they've got that thing. So if they get that thing right, then they can, you can accept them. They've passed your test. Everyone has. We all have this self-righteous kind of checklist thing. We're very bad at seeing it in our own hearts. What makes you think that one person is better than another? What makes us think as a church that people are more deserving to attend or more likely to get involved or lead something? You stand at the connect team and somebody walks through the gate. They're in you. Very quickly, you're computing and thinking, likely to stick around, maybe we could be friends, very unlikely to get involved here. Strange. I saw a lady posted a thing on our community WhatsApp group thingy looking for a church in Linden. And she was saying, I'm newish to the area, I'm looking for a church, but they need to be um, they need to be happy and welcoming of me with my tattoos. And I was like, I was going to message back and say, yay, you know, bring a little along, you know, you're welcome, yeah, maybe you can give us some advice on good ones. You know, like, seriously, but it caused me grief because some people are thinking... That's the, kind of the word that's got out for the church in some ways, that, well, I don't know if I can go to a church because I have tattoos. How did we ever get to that, where a, a, a group of Christ followers would make somebody who just had tattoos feel unwelcome? Tattoos. I mean, okay, maybe I'm upsetting some of you this morning, but honestly, tattoos are not a thing, guys. I'm just going to move on. Um, with awkward pause. Okay. Shave it. Yeah, we, we do it. We, we all have a grid. Maybe I just touched on the grid there. Yeah, yeah, you went too far there with the tattoos nonsense. You know, like that's a, that's a bridge too far. Christ offers, Jesus offers the largest, most inviting welcome the world has ever seen. And that's what the story of Zacchaeus is there meant to remind us. And our self-righteousness is such an obstacle to offering that same kind of welcome to others. How do you overcome it? What's the remedy for self-righteousness that runs deep, deep, deep in your own heart? This is the remedy. It's Romans 15 verse 7. It's one verse. It says, Therefore welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. Therefore welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. How did Jesus welcome you? What, what, what things did he put in place that you had to sort out and tidy up and clean up and standards you had to meet before you got a welcome from Jesus and forgiveness and grace and life in his name? If you're struggling with the answer, it's nothing. Jesus put no prescriptions on those things. As Christ has welcomed you, he welcomes us into relationship with him because he has taken care of all of the dark stuff 
the sin, the shame, the guilt, everything that would disqualify us from relationship with him. And so when Paul says to the, to the Romans, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, Christ has welcomed you like that, now we turn and we look at each other. And with God's help, our arms fling open wide and we say, hey, you're welcome. You're welcome in this church. You're welcome into my life, regardless of how much of your act you have together. When you have a church full with people like that, you have a place of immense power and life. Where you have a church where people have got their walls up against each other and say, well, you can come this far, but no further. You're kind of a bit awkward. Uh, You're a bit weird. You use words I wouldn't use, blah, blah, blah. All the hoops they haven't jumped through. You be, we become a legalistic, hypocritical crowd because we are no longer welcoming others the way Christ has welcomed us. And like I said, this is a mirror for us. It's diagnostic. It's worth holding up the mirror and saying, hey, how am I welcoming to others? Am I, am I extending the same kind of welcome that I've received in Christ? They're words that really require a lot of thought. I'll fast forward in the story. Zacchaeus comes down. He says, I'll give half my possessions to the to the poor Lord, and if I have extorted anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Zacchaeus hears a message of grace and welcome from Jesus. It's so profound. It has such a radical effect on his life. This is a massively costly exercise he's just committing to do. It's going to cost him a lot of money to do this. But why, why is he willing to do it? Because he's encountered the grace and the welcome of Jesus. The grace and the welcome of Jesus should have such a radical effect on our lives that we're willing to say whatever, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll do whatever, we'll follow you wherever, Lord, we'll do whatever you want us to do because no one has treated us like you have. It results in radical obedience. Tim Keller is famous for saying that religion uh, says this, I obey, therefore I am accepted. I obey, therefore I am accepted. And Christianity says, I am accepted, Therefore, I obey. It starts with acceptance and welcome and grace. He accepts us. Yes, we then obey. It's not, I obey, I obey. Look at me, God. Look what I did. No, he's not interested. He's not impressed. It's an insufficient obedience. Always, no matter how much you try, you have to begin with acceptance that leads to obedience. And Jesus says to him, salvation has come to this house. He too is a son of Abraham. Basically, he's now in. Everything has changed for him. I told you the day changed for him. Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We're going to dig into that more in the coming weeks. Let me give us some implications for us as a community as we close this out. I want to really impress on us the importance of hospitality. What do you think hospitality means? I used to think hospitality meant having people over to your house for lunch or dinner you know, and being nice to them, not just having them there, you know, giving them the side eye. How much longer? Eat up, you know. Nine o'clock's coming, tick-tock, you know. You know who your good friends are when you know you have a mutual agreement at nine o'clock, no one else is still there. They know they must let themselves out before nine. Those are your good friends. You know, the, the oaks who stay late, those, the friendship is still building there. You're still getting to the place, but it's the people who know they must see themselves out before nine o'clock. Those are your real friends. I always thought hospitality was having your friends over and maybe one or two stragglers to bring them into the community. 
the word hospitality literally translates as this welcoming strangers. It's the opposite word for xenophobia, the fear of strangers or foreigners. It's the exact opposite in the Greek. It's welcoming strangers. How good are you at practicing hospitality, having people in your home who you don't know? It's one thing to have a bra with your mates or a dinner with your pals and stitch in one or two potential likely people who won't ruin the evening. It's another thing to fling open the doors of your house to a bunch of strangers and to welcome them with grace and extend to them the welcome of Christ. That is what the Bible means when it says hospitality because it's talking about the welcome of strangers, not the welcome of your friends. The welcome of your friends is called life. Hospitality is the welcoming of strangers. Your Greek lesson for the day is done. You're welcome. Next implication. We need to get better at hospitality. Take out your phone. Yeah, genuine. I'm going to give you I'm going to give you 1 minute to think this through. Who do you need to have a meal with? Who do you need to have a meal with? Been praying this week that the Holy Spirit would give us speedy revelation and names and poke our hearts and say hey there's somebody who you need to call them up. I mean that's old school. WhatsApp them, whatever. The old people can call, the young people can WhatsApp. Um, that's how you know you're old. You call people. Uh, get in touch with them and have a meal. Who do you need to have a meal with? They're not sitting here with you. Maybe you'd love them to be sitting here. The Bible may categorize them in the category of sinners. Most people, this is a new conviction of mine, most people will come to faith in Jesus because we eat meals with them. Prove me wrong. Go and read this book and see how many times people's lives are transformed through eating together with them. There's something God has wired in the connection around tables and slowing down and asking questions and showing love through serving people food and lingering and listening to their stories instead of just ramming gospel truth down their throat. Who do you need to have a meal with? Write their name on your phone and commit yourself to get onto this week and have a meal with somebody. You will be amazed what God will do through that. He's already out way ahead of us always. He's preparing the hearts of people, hundreds of people who we haven't met, who we haven't had the meals with yet, He's doing his work already. Who do you need to contact and have a meal with? Can we commit ourselves as a church to putting to death the muttering? Putting to death the muttering. The side eyes. I don't think we're very guilty of this. As I've done my own diagnostics of our church and thinking about it, I don't think this is a massive blind spot for us. But you always just want to be watching ourselves and having a good look in the mirror. I don't think we give each other the side eye. I don't think there is a lot of that hectic self-righteousness amongst us. But we always want to be rooting it out. Is there any muttering? Are there any sideways looks? Oh gosh, you have funny hair. Pink hair, I never thought. Oh, pink is a lovely color. You're welcome at our church with your pink hair. You must be perfectly normal. Yeah. 
little subtle things like that. Oh, I wouldn't wear that to church. Oh, I wouldn't carry on like that. Oh, oh, oh. And we keep going. May we commit ourselves to killing the muttering, the murmuring, and the complaining. Here's a better way to put it. If you flip the, the, the accusation they had about Jesus, he's the friend of sinners, and you flip it on its head. May it be that when somebody jumps up at your funeral, and they're eulogizing and they're trying to think of nice things to say about you, that one of the things that shouts out from your life is this, you were the friend of sinners. You were the friend of sinners. You loved them and you ate with them. You loved them and you ate with them. Not not you gave your best effort to the church. Not that you were the most faithful servant. Not that you gave the most money. No one cares about that stuff. That's what Jesus came and he modeled for us, isn't it? When God himself comes to the world, what does he do? He befriends sinners and he eats with them. If you're looking for something to pattern your life after, find a whole bunch of sinners and invite them for dinner. And just do that again and again and again and again. And love them and point them to the grace-giving one who welcomes them and calls them home to himself. Second last thing, when you come to church, look for the men in trees. Look for the men in trees. I preached a sermon on men in trees 15 years ago, and the Lord reminded me of it this week. It was on Zacchaeus. It was called Men in Trees. When you come to church, what do you, what, what state are you coming in? Are you prayed up? Are you ready? Are you looking for opportunities for how the Lord may use you on a Sunday? Or you just come in to you know, dash in and out, arrive as late as possible, leave as early, don't want to talk to anyone, or just come and sing. I hope I don't stand next to somebody who can't sing. And it's all just about, about you. I want to suggest to you that you get the most, you get the most out of being in a church and coming on a Sunday when you're looking for the men in trees. Who has climbed up the tree? Who is outside? Who needs particular attention? May it never be that our church is described like my mate described that one church. Looks great if you're already part of it, but looks like it might be difficult to get in. When we all have coffee and tea afterwards, we're all in our circles and we're chatting. Have we got eyes for the people who are drinking coffee on their own, who zip out the door there and don't want to talk to anyone, who sitting silently on a chair, not wondering, oh, we're just wondering like, hey, Lord, I made a deal with you and I'm going to go to that church and if somebody talks to me, I'll stick around and maybe you'll be real. And we overlook those people. Sometimes people make deals like that. Maybe you made a deal like that today. People make deals with God all the time. Would, would God help us to be a people who look in, in the trees? And you come to church, prayed up and ready, say, Lord, would you use me in some way? Sometimes it's just saying, how is it to somebody? Sometimes it's just a greeting. Sometimes it's praying with somebody. Sometimes it's just asking how they're doing, asking questions instead of talking about yourself. Sometimes it's deeper. Sometimes it's a lift somewhere. Sometimes it's an invitation to lunch or to a meal of the week or, hey, let's get coffee or a WhatsApp afterwards. You look down. You look like you were really struggling today. I noticed that and I'm praying for you. And if you need help, just give me a shot. Well, I'm coming to see you this week. Look for the men in trees. It's what it means to be a gospel community, a gospel culture, is that the feel of the place is that you are overwhelmed and loved and cared for in the gospel. Not just that we all nod and agree that yes, all of these things are true and our doctrine is correct and the feel of the place is different. 
And the last thing is we come to communion and maybe the most important is that we need to start by receiving grace for ourselves. Receiving the welcome of Jesus again for ourselves. Reminding ourselves, if you have received that grace, that that welcome never changes. That you don't come this morning having to tidy yourself up again, pray the right prayers, sort it out again. You come, this is the great message of the gospel, you come to a Savior whose arms are wide open and he says, just come again. We're going to sing a song as we close called Run to the Father. The words of it go like this, I run to the Father, fall into grace, I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon and my soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again and again. And if you're a believer in Jesus, that's my invitation to you today, is just to run to him again. To enjoy for yourself what we want to make a big deal of offering to others is the, the welcome of Jesus and the acceptance and the grace that's found in him. And if you have never experienced that yourself, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you this morning, maybe for the first time, to run to the Father who loves you and to enjoy his welcome and his acceptance. Grace is found in nobody else other than Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we come to communion. Father, we thank you that you you don't treat us as our sins deserve. But instead, you are the God of mercy and grace. We don't understand um, fully how, how this could all be true and how it could possibly work that, that you, the Holy God, would welcome us and love us and accept us and be willing, be willing because, because of the death of Jesus, because you made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we may know the righteousness of God in Christ. Because you've done that, and he's dealt with the issue of relational breakdown and sin between us, now we just get to come to you because we've placed faith in you. We just get to come again and again and again and run to our Father. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretty ourselves up. We just come. And we come again this morning as a church community just to run to you. We run to your grace and we run to your welcome. Our hearts do need a surgeon. Our souls do need a friend. And in you we have found the perfect one. And so thank you, Father, that you see uh, everyone here this morning. You know the condition of our hearts. You know what's going on in our lives. And I pray that now, through the work of your Spirit, we, you would enable us to respond, to run to you and to receive the grace that we need for today. You know the soul struggles that we each bear. You know the mercy that we need and we come to you. We've got no other options. We've got no, no other help aw awaiting us. All of our hope, all of our trust, all of our help is in you. We pray that you would grace those who may never have experienced this 
as they experience you drawing them to you, to the life-giving, grace-giving Son of God, Jesus Christ, that you would give them grace to respond to you. And as we come to take these elements of bread and juice that symbolize the body that you gave up on the cross for us, Jesus, and the blood you were willing to shed, we pray that as we reflect on these things, as we take them, we would meet with you again, the living God. We pray that these things would transform the culture of our church. We want to be a church of grace and welcome. We want to be a church where when others come in here, they experience not just friendly people, but they experience the grace of Jesus Christ and the welcome of the Father. That it it permeates everything that we say and sing and do and the whole feel of this place because we fully believe it and experience it each for ourselves and it seeps into every part of the life of our church. We pray for your grace and your help in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.